And a good Sunday evening, church. Hope you had a wonderful afternoon. I hope everybody obeyed the 11th commandment, which is, Thou shalt take a nap on Sunday. And then thou shalt get up and let thy dog take thee for a walk. So, hope everybody had a good day. It's been a beautiful day, hasn't it? Um, I don't remember, I don't remember the last fall that we had that was this beautiful. This, uh, this has just been a tremendously beautiful fall. It's my favorite time of year. And uh, boy, I'll tell you, God just really put on a show this year, didn't he? Thank the Lord. Look with me tonight in the book of Philippians, the book of Philippians. And again, I, I want to uh, commend you and encourage you in, in your journey forward as you have uh, chosen a, an interim pastor. And um, I wanted to give you something tonight that I feel that would help you as a church. Usually the Sunday night crowd is the, is the core of the church and really has their finger on the pulse of the church, so to speak. And I think this is something that will help you tremendously. Philippians, the book of Philippians chapter 2, I'd ask you to stand as we start reading in verse 5. And this is just, oh my goodness, this is one of the most tremendous passages Sections, I should say, sections of Scripture in the entire New Testament. It is believed that what I'm about to read was an early Christian hymn. And it says in Philippians 2.5, Let this mind be in you. You will want to mark that. Let this mind be in you. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You'll notice there's more to come. What kind of mind? This kind of mind, who, that is Jesus, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Did you notice that all of that was really one sentence? Starting with verse 5, it continues in verse 6, it continues in verse 7, and the thought does not end until verse 8. Let that kind of mind be in you. Wherefore, verse 9 says, God also hath highly exalted or lifted him up and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Father, now open our hearts and our minds, our ears, our eyes, our spirits, to what this passage is really saying to us tonight. Lord, may we enter into the inner sanctum and understand that we are to have the same frame of mind, the same attitude as that of Jesus, 
who, though he was in the form of God, did not think it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself in the form of a servant, came in the form of a servant. Bless this time together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. I remember it extremely well. I was in the fifth grade. This was sometime in the early 1970s. And there had been about five or six of us, if I remember correctly, in the fifth grade. And I was one of the lucky winners who got to do some classwork with the sixth grade. That's about as close to an honors class as I ever came, I guess. And um, I was one of the people picked to, we didn't get to skip a grade, but we got to do work with the sixth grade. Well, that was, that was quite an honor, and I appreciated that honor. And honestly, before God, I, I don't remember that. I, I don't think it did, but <laughs> I don't remember that going to my head. I don't remember that giving me a, a big old attitude or an ego boost or anything like that. I, I was glad for the opportunity. <laughs> Oh, but one of my teachers had a difference of opinion. <laughs> and one day it was time for class. And I came in, and this is, this, I think it's just a bad habit, to be honest with you. I don't think it was an attitude, but she thought it was. But it came time for class, and I came in, and my seat was there, and I sat down like this. Kind of like I do when my wife says, you are going to break that chair. Man, Miss Hazel. Chewed my ears off. Man. She said, you think you're really something because you get to work with the sixth grade, mister. I didn't think I did, but apparently she did, and she felt like I really needed an attitude adjustment. You know, and she just had that look about her that when she got in that mode, you didn't say anything. Yes. I mean, I had teachers that wore those glasses that looked like the fenders on a 57 Chevrolet. <laughs> with little shiny things in them. And you don't argue with a teacher like that, I'm telling you. I just know from experience, you just don't. An attitude adjustment. Have you ever had an attitude adjustment? Those are not fun, are they? Have you ever given an attitude adjustment? Oh, oh yeah. Those aren't fun either. Sometimes they have to be done, though, don't they? We know that it means to adjust our way of thinking. When we have one of those, when we give one of those, which of course adjust the way we respond to people and to circumstances. I want you in your mind's eye to picture the entire letter of Philippians. It's not a big letter at all. It's only, only four chapters. Oh, but what a powerful little letter it is. I love those little books. They're easier to digest. They're easier to to work with, but yet you get in there and you realize 
you're in way over your head. But I want you in your mind's eye to picture the letter of the Philippians as a wagon wheel. A wagon wheel. And this wagon wheel, of course, has a central hub, and then it has a number of spokes going out from that hub, connecting to the circumference of the wheel itself. I think if there is a hub in Philippians, it's bound to be the section that I just read to you. And without the hub, there is no wheel. The spokes have nothing to which to connect. It's the center. Philippians 2, 5 to 11 should be thought also as the center of our lives. And this reflects a favorite theme of Paul's. Paul loved the theme of Christ the Lord humbling himself. He said in the second letter to the Corinthians, though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Though he was rich, he became poor. But there's a really, really interesting word, and I said to mark this, it's let this mind, let this mind. That's in, in Greek, that's, it's just one word, but amazingly, it's used 23 times, different forms of it. It's used 23 times in Philippians. That's amazing, isn't it? And it means something like in, in the letter itself, to have understanding, to be wise, to feel, to think, to have an opinion of oneself, to think of oneself, to be modest, not to let one's opinion of himself exceed the bounds of modesty, to think or judge what one's opinion is, to be of the same mind that is agreed together, to cherish the same views, to be harmonious, to direct one's mind to a thing, to seek, to strive for, to seek one's interest or advantage, to be of one's party, to side with a person in public affairs. Now you have to remember all that because that's going to be one of the questions at the judgment. The Lord's going to ask you, what was the meaning of that Greek word in Philippians 2.5? You better remember all that. That's about 19 different things, okay? For Paul, any system of thought must become a way of life. Don't forget that. Theology is not just a curious hobby for the elite. Theology is not just theoretical thinking. Oh, never for Paul. Some people treat it as a hobby. Some people like to wear it on their sleeve to show people how much they know, and really they show how little they know because in the New Testament, biblical theology is something that must become a way of life. Yes. In Philippians 2.5, this word let this mind is present tense, active voice, imperative mood. What does that mean? Well, present tense means that it's going on right now. Okay? Active voice means that you are literally involved in the acting out of it. You're not being acted upon. That's passive voice. The boy hit the ball. That's active voice. The boy was hit by the ball. That's passive voice. 
So it's present tense right now, active mood, and it is imperative. If something is imperative, it does what? It gives a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not just a good idea. It is something where we are commanded. So what this is saying is, all the time, every day, you and I are required to have this kind of attitude or mindset. And that's what I want to talk about for just a few moments, an attitude adjustment. We need an attitude adjustment every single day. I know I do. It's sometimes easy to forget to let this mind be in us. In Philippians 1, 7, it has to do with holding a, a disposition of mind. In chapter 2, verse 2, to hold an opinion. 2, 5, which I just read, it is literally let this mind. 3, 15, it talks about being thus minded with the rest of the church. Chapter 4, verse 2 it's to be minded, to have an attitude. This is an interesting one. 4.2, Paul says, I beseech you, Odious, and beseech Syntyche, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Both of those words, both of those names are feminine. Okay? And he said, and I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel. Now, Euodius and Syntyche evidently we're at odds over something. I don't gather that it was anything really big. It's not big stuff that splits churches, folks. It is rarely, rarely big stuff, unless it's a case of immorality or embezzlement or something like that. But it's usually the, the little foxes that spoil the vine, usually. You know, it's, it's little, you know, Euodius may have been mad because Syntyche got to serve on the cookie committee for VBS and she was left out and she always serves cookies during VBS. It's stuff like that. Or it's stuff like, why did Syntyche get her name in the bulletin for recognition and my name was left out? It's stuff like that. I don't know what it was. I, I gathered that it probably wasn't a really serious thing, or I think Paul would have addressed it like he does in chapter 3, where he addresses a more serious doctrinal issue. But it's to have a certain mind, a certain attitude. Well, what kind of attitude did Jesus have? Well, according to verse 6, he did not take advantage of his equality with God. He says, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He did not take advantages of his equality with God. The Greek language is incredibly rich. English is fairly poor by comparison as far as the, the range of meaning. But the Greek language, for example, for the word form, and this is <clears throat> about the only way you can translate it, there are two different words for form. And the word for form here refers to the unchanging, essential nature. It's the word morphe, like where something morphs, okay? The other word is schema. It looks like schema or scheme. And it refers to outward change. The word that's used here is the word that means the unchanging, essential nature. 
For example, we look out at the trees and we look out at the leaves, those beautiful trees that have transformed this fall. Their essential unchanging nature is that they are trees. But their outward change has to do with the change of the color of the leaves and the dropping off of the leaves. That part has changed. What is unchanged is their essential nature. They are trees, and that won't change. Christ's essential nature was such that he was equal with God. Verse 7, he was everything, but he made himself nothing. Verse 7, he was a king who became a servant. Verses 7 and 8, he was God who became a man. In verse 8, he was the creator and giver of life and underwent death. In verses 9, 10, and 11, he went so low, but yet he was lifted so high and given a name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow Every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. The first, the most basic, and the most important confession in Christianity was simply three little words. Jesus is Lord. Ladies and gentlemen, people went to their deaths for that confession. Jesus is Lord. Oh, come on. Don't make this so difficult. For goodness sake, put a pinch of incense on the altar and say that Caesar is Lord. It's not that big a deal. I can't do it. What do you mean you can't do it? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Now, some did. Some said, well, I'll, <laughs> heaven's sake, I'll do it. I don't want to lose my job. I, more than that, I don't want to lose my life. I'll put a pinch of incense on the altar and I'll say that Caesar is Lord and I'll leave it if they want me to. If I don't, I don't want to do it, but if I have to, I will even say that Caesar is Lord and God. Some, some, of, the, some of the emperors accepted and took seriously emperor worship. Most of them didn't. Some of the real crazed ones like uh, Nero and Domitian and Caligula, they did. They took it seriously. But the ones who said, I, I, I can't do that, in some cases, went to their death over that simple confession. There are aspects of being a pastor that I really, really miss. I, I would admit that to anybody. Certain aspects. One of the things that I miss the most is being able to administer the ordinance of baptism. I really, really miss that. I always ask the candidates four questions. And I always ask those questions in the presence of God and in the company of the witness of the church. I ask the candidate, do you confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Yes or no? Do you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? Yes or no? Have you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And do you determine from this day forward... As God gives you grace to live your life for Him. Always those four questions. I miss that. What were the principal traits of Jesus? How about these? Humility. Obedience. Self. Renunciation. 
I've got to meddle just a little bit. I'm, I'm meddling because I guess I'm talking about my own here. But I've seen pastors, I've seen missionaries abuse their positions. I've seen it. I've been around those types. It's always very ugly. It's always very uncomfortable. This abuse usually manifests itself in the polar opposites of humility, obedience, and self-renunciation. And the polar opposites, of course, would be pride, disobedience, and self-promotion. It would be those, for example. There's the pride of power. Some people don't handle power well. There was a young minister who was at a church once and he went walking by as cocky as a Rhode Island red rooster and another pastor said, there but for the grace of God goes God. <laughs> yeah. The pride of power, the pride of influence, the pride of material gain, the pride and the disobedience of manipulating the people of God and promoting one's self. Ladies and gentlemen, I say to you without reservation and without one moment's hesitation, beware the preacher. I don't care how well he preaches. Beware the preacher who loves to talk about I. Beware that preacher. Run as fast as you can the other way. Oh, but he preaches so well. Run the other way. Oh, but he's got such a good personality. Run. He's a narcissist. Get away from him. You don't want him. I said, but yeah, but listen, the preacher who is wrapped up in the word I is not God's man for your church. And I'm going to say that without a minute's apology. Without a minute's apology. I remember a funeral for one of our patients that I attended back in July. I had a small part in that funeral. That's a pretty regular part of what I do. Sometimes I'm asked to conduct the funeral. Sometimes I'm asked to sing. I was asked to, to sing at this one. And um, the, the, the man's current pastor and a former pastor did the funeral. And I have to tell you, folks, I felt so sorry for that family. I did. Because I'm a preacher and I'm, I'm list, when I hear a sermon, I hear a sermon differently from, I, I don't like the term lay people, but just, just regular members of the church. I don't like laymen and clergymen. I don't like those terms, but you understand what I mean. I hear things differently than regular people, <laughs> just church people. Okay. It's not that what they're hearing is bad, not that what they're hearing is wrong. I just hear it differently. Okay. That, that's all it means. And, and the, the former pastor, especially, it just really almost withered my spirit. I didn't hear anything about grace or mercy or comfort. I didn't really hear anything about even eulogizing the, the, the person who had died. I, I didn't hear much about comfort and consolation. But what I heard about was I, 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 and the way I do it in my ministry and what I've experienced. I thought, boy, now that's a lot of comfort, isn't it? Let me tell you something. 
I can't remember, please forgive me, this is a wonderful quote, and I cannot remember where I got this, but someone once said that this, I cannot at one and the same time create the impression that Jesus is wonderful and that I am clever. Can't be done. Read the Scripture. It doesn't make any difference what the scribes say. Read the Scripture. It'll save you a lot of headache. The Bible opened up a lot for me that I had heard and seen and experienced. And I thought, wait a minute. You know what? There's not a verse of Scripture for this foolishness. Not one verse of Scripture. There is no book, chapter, and verse for this mess. I've heard of preachers who say that, you know, God's men deserve the best. Yeah. And uh, you ought to give me a discount because I'm a man of God. I say charge them double if that's their attitude. Absolutely. Charge them double if that's their attitude. How does that square with 1 Corinthians, the first four chapters? Where one of the major, major problems in the church at Corinth was divisions. That's a huge problem. That wasn't a small issue. That was a big, big problem. When Paul gets over to chapter 4 in 1 Corinthians, do you know what he says? Even about people like Peter, the chief of the apostles, Apollos, of whom Scripture says was eloquent and mighty in the Scripture. Apollos was eloquent. He was learned. He was a great orator. But do you know what Paul said about himself, about Peter, to whom he refers as Cephas, and Apollos, who was eloquent and mighty in the Scripture? He said, we are servants. Servants. The chief of the apostles was a servant. The apostle to the Gentiles was a servant. The eloquent and learned apostle, Apollos, was a servant. Celebrities? No. Superstars? No. Privileged? Sitting on a pedestal? No. No. And no. Servants of Jesus. Servants of Jesus. Over the years, I, I developed more and more respect for Charles Stanley. Charles Stanley has... He has helped as many people in the faith, I guess, as anybody that I know of. His teaching is, is simple, it's straightforward, but that's, that's the point. It's simple and it's straightforward and, and people understand what he's saying. And I'll never forget, I, I was listening to Charles Stanley. I had the privilege of hearing him speak in person one night down in Atlanta. And, uh, and he was talking about being at some sort of pastor's conference and that. They were having a meal, and there was a, a preacher who had spoken, and evidently he really did a great job. And someone was talking to this preacher and said, man, you, you are really good. I said, well, thank you. He said, why, the, the person saying this, why are you not more well-known? Charles Stanley said he was getting ready to take a bite of food, and that man said, well, I don't know. I guess I just haven't promoted myself enough. He said, I was getting ready to take a bite of food, and I put my fork down, and I said, Lord, by your grace, I will never promote myself. 
That's a man of God. That's the attitude of Jesus. All of this, ladies and gentlemen, should have a profound bearing on our attitudes. A man that I greatly respected who passed away just a few years ago, Dr. David Irby. He was professor for many years at Union University over in West Tennessee and was just a wonderful preacher, wonderful man, husband, father. I really respected him and he ended up being one of our patients there in Elizabethan and he died just a few years ago. He talked about his, his academic career and he was in some sort of, I forget what he was, maybe he was a dean, some sort of administrative position, but he really wanted to teach. He really wanted to be with the students. So he said, I managed to work my way down the ladder. I love that. That's not the way we do it, is it? Work your way up the ladder. No, he said, I worked my way down the ladder. Chuck Swindoll wrote this piece. You've probably heard it somewhere along the way, but it's, it's worth repeating. Chuck Swindoll said, The longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. Attitude to me is more important than facts. It is more important than the past, than education, than money, than circumstances, than failures, than successes, than what other people think, say, or do. It is more important than appearance, giftedness, or skill. It will make or break a company, a church, a home. The remarkable thing is that we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we embrace for that day. We cannot change our past. We cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play the one string we have, and that is our attitude. I am convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react to it. And so it is with you. You are in charge of your attitude. Let this mind be in you. Christ humbled himself. And verse 8 is surely the apex. He became obedient unto death. Even the death of the cross. It would have been enough if it simply would have said that Christ became obedient unto death. That would have been enough. But no, he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Probably the most horrific form of execution ever devised by the wicked mind of humans. Someone said that crucifixion is the only death that people die with outstretched arms. Christ didn't merely die. He died even the death of the cross. Now. How does all this relate, for example, to power and control? Everybody wants, and I will say everybody needs, a certain measure of power, a certain measure of control. But there's a fine balance. Too much is bad. Too little is bad. How does it relate to my attitude about power and control? Christ didn't take advantage of it. How does it relate to my personal sacrifices? 
whatever personal sacrifices I have made are awfully small. They're awfully small. How does it relate to my ambition? How does it relate to my accomplishments? And all of this is in Philippians, by the way. How does it relate to my past? What about my petty disagreements like Yodia and Syntyche? What about my anxiety? What about that? Philippians 4, 6. This has become my verse this year. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. One translation puts it this way. Don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. I love that. My anxiety. What about my circumstances? Church, I exhort you. Take on the same attitude, mindset of Jesus as a corporate body and as an individual. I exhort you, work your way down the ladder. Seek not how that you can climb the ladder and get the recognition that you may feel that you deserve, maybe that you do deserve. I just know that Scripture says the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The one who exalts himself will be humbled. Instead of thinking, how can people recognize me? Ask, how can I serve legitimate needs of other people? In Lewis Carroll's famous book, Through the Looking Glass, Alice stepped through the mirror of the living room to find a world on the opposite side where everything is backwards. Alice wants to go forward, but every time she moves, she ends up back where she started. She tries to go left and ends up right. She tries to go up and ends up down. She tries to go fast and ends up going slow. <laughs> Christianity. Biblical Christianity is a kind of looking glass world where everything works on principles opposite to those of the world around us. To be blessed, we must be a blessing to others. To receive love, we have to give love. To be honored, we must first be humble. To truly live, we must die to self. To gain the unseen, we must let go of the seen. To receive, we must give. To save our lives, we must lose our lives. To lead, we must be servants. To be first, we must become last. And you know, little by little, as we take on this attitude, present, active, imperative. Right now, every day, be active in the process and remember it's a command, as we participate in the process, those things that appear to be so important, so time-consuming, so vital, they fade into insignificance. I guess Isaac Watts was my favorite hymnist of the church, lived back in the 1600s. Great, great hymn writer. And... Maybe my favorite hymn of all was when I surveyed the wondrous cross. And I like this stanza that says, 
Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast. Save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most I sacrifice them to his blood now Lord would you add your blessing to your word and would you take these stammering words from this broken vessel of clay a vessel that leaks, a vessel that chips, a vessel whose flaws are sometimes obvious, whose flaws are sometimes not seen by others, but nevertheless are there. And bless this time together that we've had. And bless this church in the days ahead. And may her best days be out in front. In Jesus' name, amen.